Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ask the CEO with Avraham Gatile. Today, I'd like to introduce a very special guest. He's a global cloud technology influencer and leading independent analyst who consults, educates, and delivers cloud strategies for vendors and client organizations. His specialties include service delivery management, business continuity management, technical architecture, management consulting, and cloud computing. He's held multiple director-level positions at international banks and financial service delivery firms, such as IBM, Olivetti, ADP Telerit, Thompson Financial, Merrill Lynch, and West LV. He has created many startup technology firms and is ranked in the top 50 for the technology market. It is my pleasure to welcome the one and only Neil Cattermall. Welcome, Neil. Oh, thank you for putting me on that pedestal. Oh, you know, I always love to start on a high note. Dave. That's cool. Neil, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. You know, recently IBM was in the news regarding their merger with Red Hat. As someone who specializes in corporate mergers and acquisitions, can you help us understand why did IBM acquire Red Hat? Well, you know what, there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons really. I mean, it depends who you talk to. You know, a lot of the large vendors now have to be seen to be embracing the world of open source. One way is to acquire a company that's open source. Well, that's obviously an easy very, way. Very right? convenient. Uh, another way is uh, develop your, in, your, your vendor tool sets and your products to be more open source friendly. Um, funny enough, IBM do this twice. So yes, they, their AI and, and one of their largest and most salubrious product ranges, the mainframe, is what I call uh, Linux ready. It's been, you could run Linux off that environment for years and years, you know. And Red Hat, as well as Canonical and others, were, were one of the, the product sets that, you know, that could come preloaded on a mainframe. So there, there's loads of benefits. I can see IBM uh, read the reasons why they acquired Red Hat. And it makes economic sense. Um, some people would say they, paid a little bit more. But to be honest, in all reality, I know Red Hat were looking to be acquired for, for a while now. So, you know, someone needed to snap them up before somebody else did. For sure. Now, isn't it true that IBM's cloud, which used to be called Bluemix, is also uh, open source? Uh, yeah, I think they dropped the name Bluemix. Um, not quite sure what it's called now. Um, but the Blue the Bluemix environment was impressive, really, to be honest, because it was a little bit ahead of its time. Um, it was a bit more like the whole development environment that was you could upload to other sources. So, you know, I could develop locally and have a full tool set locally uh, and then upload to hybrid cloud approaches to obviously the IBM cloud, but, but also to others. So, and then and make that live. So I could develop and go live within minutes, which is pretty impressive. Now, you don't hear much of the, uh, the Bluemix environment these days, though. And, you know, you touched upon a good point with regards to hybrid cloud, because as I was reading up on the merger, one of the strategic drivers behind this uh, acquisition was the hybrid cloud technology. Uh, so first of all, can just help, help us understand what is hybrid cloud and why is IBM so interested in it? Mm. Well, I mean, IBM were were pushing hybrid cloud long time ago. I remember going to events, talking to IBM events about hybrid cloud tech, 
when they were releasing it, the others were playing catch up. And we're going, I don't know, maybe three, four years ago. Um, I still have all the corporate slide decks and interviews I did then, you know, and everyone thought, what on earth is hybrid? You know, what are we talking about? And it's this hybrid multi-cloud approach where you can have multiple APIs or connectivity out to disparate tech environments, wherever it may be, you know, so I may have some core enterprise tech here, but then I can burst out to AWS, IBM's cloud, and Google Cloud, but I have all these disparate um, stateful and non-stateful APIs into other systems. So basically giving you more choice. It's a complete multi-cloud approach, if you like. Now, well, for the layperson, what does hybrid cloud give you that you don't have with the public cloud? Mm, choice. Um, really, in a word, you get more choice. You, get, you can burst into database to service providers um, on one outset. You could have a, a connect, connection out to a, a disparate email provider. I can have a connection to Azure if I really wanted to. I can, it gives me the choice to have the availability into different clouds. And you think what a hybrid is really at the end of the day, a hybrid is not just one thing, a combination of a couple of things, you know, and it's a similar in tech, but. For sure, and that, that was very well explained. We did that in the telecom world when we wanted to have uh, a fully redundant system. So we would have redundant telephone carriers so that you're not locked into Verizon or AT&T. Verizon's having problems, you go to AT&T and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, it's the thing, right? I've, you know, telecoms industry has been around a lot longer than cloud, you know, and, you know, I, and I think, do you know, I think the telecoms guys are, are, are struggling to keep up with the new tech, you know, it's a, it's a major overhaul for those guys. You know? For sure. It's, you know, it's like every other industry, it's getting majorly disrupted and all these legacy people, it's, it's really hitting them hard. I mean, with the rise of, Technologies like blockchain, I mean, that's ripe for the telecoms industry, you know, and certainly for mobile billing, for example, would be yeah. a prime example of that. But, you know, it's playing catch up and how much do you spend and where do you spend it, that, that future tech initiative. And then once I've spent it, then should I have sat back for another six months because there's another future initiative that's going to be equally disruptive then. You know, the, the average chief exec or a CTO is a very difficult, it's a difficult job now because the tech is spurned by immense innovation and, and it's hard to keep up. And how do you get the right advice for that? You know, that's why we bring experts like you on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Neil, with the Red Hat acquisition, is IBM looking to compete against AWS? Um, I think they're probably trying to try to compete against all the major providers, you know, not just AWS. I think they might, you might even see them go head to head with Microsoft. Uh, Oracle are a bit more niche, um, but they're, you know, Oracle are, are up there too, you know, and so are Google. But you know what? My money would be, it, I think they are, yes, for certain instances, yes. Um, but you've also got to look at where they make the most money at the moment. You know, at the end of the day, 
who can tell me the truth about who's making the most money in cloud, right? Um, and are they really? Is it sustainable? You know, you look at any other provider, Microsoft, you're coming on, I mean, they are really going up there now, head to head with Amazon. I mean, AWS has been the mainstay because they embraced open source from the start. They embraced the, the startup communities from the start. You know, they gave their tool sets, just gave them there. Very startup friendly, for sure. Yeah, and they were very open source ready from, from the day one. The problem is that there's an also an obscene amount of hidden charges, you know, that, that come out of the woodwork that people sometimes overlook, you know. And, and I was watching a Bloomberg um, uh, presentation and, and was it only this morning about, you know, charges, you know, it's, you know, people like Netflix and Lyft on AWS, you know, and they it's quite you know, here's the challenge that I see because I used to be a developer, so I understand how, how developers work. You have a whole room full of servers and, you know, they're all jury rigged together and you just let them run 24, seven, 365. You're, you're developing some code, you're testing, you go home for the weekend, the thing's still burning. But yeah. when you go to the cloud, that thing is racking up charges. So you need to know that you got to turn it off. You can't just let it run constantly. And I think that's really the biggest uh, disconnect where people run into when they, when they move into the cloud space. Yeah, they, they, it's quite interesting with about five years ago, AWS really made their mark uh, in the UK as, as well as you know, in Europe and other, other countries and, and regions uh, because they coined the pay-as-you-go method for true cloud computes. Um, and and storage, and I I never forget the chat that I had with a hedge fund manager. We were chatting away over well, quite a lot of alcohol, but uh, just maybe one or two many. Um, and we were discussing, and I said, "Well, why are you using AWS? Are you worried about the security for one? Are you worried about the the cost for two? He said, "Not really." I said, "He said, I said, well, why?" He said, "Well, you know, I can just pay for it on a credit card." And I said, well, I, I get that, but that's good for budget. He's going outside of every compliance ruling that's been written to stop exactly that, you know, but because it was such an easy turn on, turn off service and the billing was great. He just put his credit card and he was a developer as well. And it was easy for him, but to the internal politics of getting infrastructure running, getting it passed, going it through the, the project board, the steering committee, then they have to go to the risk committee, then go, Ding, sign off, yeah, you can do that. It will take a week or two. He said I could do it in a day. And nobody would even know. So I'm worried, that, I mean, that was gone five years ago. You know? Imagine what it could be like. It could be yeah. life now, you know? For sure. Moving right along with, with the merger, one other point that I read about was that IBM was very interested in Red Hat's Kubernetes distribution. Now, here's the thing. This is a new buzzword that popped up in my Twitter feed maybe like three months ago. I just started seeing it all over the place. So first of all, what is Kubernetes? What is Red Hat doing with it? And why is IBM interested in it? Well, that's, that's a, more than a, a few minutes conversation. Kubernetes, you know what? 
this came around so quickly. And I watched a few Google presentations on this a few years back, and I thought, wow. It, when something sounds too good to be true, it normally is, you know. But, you know, these were the days where everyone was having instances of containers, right? and containerization was the buzz. It still is to a, to a degree what now. Is, what is a container? Um, think of it like a folder, you know. Um, I've put stuff in it, and I can run stuff in it um, in isolation of other stuff. Um, that's a really crude analogy, but, you know, if I could have you know, multiple container instances with application libraries and one VM running and maintaining and overseeing all of them, so, you know, it's, I can just dump container uh, code into container and, and run it, whatever that service may be. And, and then microservices came around from this. So do you imagine I can, I can execute and run code in its own self-contained container? Then I can then actually call that a microservice. Now, and then so all of a sudden microservices uh, came around. So what did we do? How do you manage that? You know, I mean, it was all on Docker in the day, you know, uh, and that was the flavor of the month. And there are very many versions of it with, with containerization software. But how do you manage these instances? And that's really where Kubernetes came into the frame, where it's great at managing microservices and containerization uh, initiatives in all reality. And you can have many, many, many instances of it. The security used to be a bit lax, but it's come a long way since then. A long way. However, I don't know what Red Hat are doing with it at its present moment, but I'm, I'm sure I'll find out. Fantastic. So let's talk about mergers and acquisitions in general. What goes into that and why do companies, you know, how does a company just decide to merge? Well, that's a good question too. Um, hmm. So... I always say, if you ever start a business, always start with the end in mind. Otherwise, it becomes a lifestyle business. Just like, you know, back in uh, a long time ago that, you know, you'd open a sweet shop and that sweet shop will be there for life. Maybe handed down to your son and his own son. Um, business is not really like that. You know, you need to have a goal and a vision. Either it's a, a one, two, three, five-year plan. Typically, a three-year plan would be good. Where do you want to be in three years? What's the ultimate goal and achievement? So if you don't have one, you're just floating along. You know, you're making money, but there's no vision or goal at the end of it. So why not get a job in all reality in a high-paying one? Um, there's only a certain type of animal that decides to go, right, that's it. I'm going to... I'm going to create my own company and I'm going to go forward and this is how it's going to be. It's going to be amazing. You know, and it takes a certain person to do that because, you know, running a business isn't easy and it's, you have the highs and lows. So normally you'd go through a process of where you are and you have key markers of each milestone in your business. So for example, if I started a business today, I'd say, okay, what's my three year goal? Where do I want to be? Do I want to be the best at Kubernetes uh, infrastructure or, or service deployment and management? Or do I going to have Kubernetes as a service and I'm going to manage all of your instances of your containers uh, that you have on site? I don't want to be the best in the business. How do I achieve it? 
And after three years, just before the peak, I'd be interested to see if anyone would acquire me. So, you know, at the end of the day, I always say business is never for life. You can make a, you can make a, a judgment call along the way, but, you know, there's certain environment variables. What happens if a new Kubernetes equivalent comes out, you know, halfway through your business model execution? Then you're a bit stuffed. Then you might need to adapt. And I like to think that, you know, I would see that coming. So I would have secondary revenue that would support that while I tweak my business model. But, you know, the end of the goal, the end of the game, really, you should be looking to either be acquired or sell, or you may want to acquire somebody else to be bigger. You know, it's really horses for courses. It's very fascinating, uh, everything we're talking about. I'm just curious, Neil, how did you get started? I mean, is, was this like a lifelong aspiration to be a mergers and acquisitions expert? Oh, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm far from an expert. Um, I think everyone's learning. I, I've learned the hard way. I mean, I've run a few startups myself, um, made some money, lost a lot of money. Um, so, you know, it, it's just experience, really. But I think, as I said before, you know, it, running a company is not for the faint-hearted. You're going to have cash flow problems. You're going to have product placement problems. You're going to have competition. You're going to have all sorts of things. You can have sleepless nights. Maybe you can get divorced over it. Who knows, right? Um, some people do. And if you've got a family, that's going to be draining on your time. So, you know, it's not for everyone. It's not for the faint-hearted. Uh, and if it was, then, hey, we'd all be running our own businesses, right? Um, I sort of fell into it. I had an experience from a service provision point of view to uh, a client infrastructure point of view to... And I had some really good guidance from some good mentors out there in the early days that they're very good friends that have been there and done it several times over. And luckily I was taken under their wing. Neil, we have some questions from the audience. Mm, wonderful. We have a question from Neville Wang. He's the CEO of Neuroso Innovation in New Taipei City, Taiwan. Neville says, it's said that IBM acquiring Red Hat will have a significant impact on cloud services. In your opinion, how will the prevalence of cloud impact cybersecurity? Hmm. So we're equating cybersecurity from emergence from a cloud point of view to a Red Hat acquisition. Um, well, that's a little bit tricky. I would say, you know, would, uh, would the acquisition of Red Hat really have a big knock-on effect with cloud? Possibly, you know, but when we talk about cybersecurity, you know, we, we've need, we've, the whole market has needed to change its approach for years. And we've, we were always just too reactionary. You know, we, we wait until something goes wrong and then we fix it because we never attain or try to get the right budget to actually be precautionary right? we don't we always just need jerk and it's nature of business and it's nature of people that they'd rather not spend money uh, until they have to and cyber security you're defending you know your crown jewels you know you can't scrimp you can't scrape on that and cloud has just accelerated the fact that everything has potential visibility to everybody i'm sure that you know if the the uh, C-level exec uh, board, you know, now it's very much on the agenda with the public 
hackings and and crazy misconfigurations uh, of massive infrastructures that have been out in the open now they've got the right board budgets and if they haven't they're absolutely insane because all it takes is one hacking that's all it takes and then you've got multiple threats you know but the great thing with cloud is that you can have multiple deterrents you know and a one-size deterrent doesn't fit all anymore because these cyber attacks are extremely complicated and they're very much in a stealth mode and if you do not have the right protection they will definitely get in so our next question is from Neville Gaunt he's the founder of MindFit LTD in, in the UK and Neville joins us here on video hello Neil and Avraham it's Neville Gaunt from the UK and I've been fascinated with mergers and acquisitions for more most of my life but the question i've got is when one plus one is supposed to be greater than two and all of the synergies that we're expecting from this acquisition or merger to me the majority never realize up to expectations and equally all of the growth hype tends to be more of a protectionism i'd really like to know what neil's view is on that Oh, well, thank you for that, Neville. Well, from, from an acquisition per, uh, point of view, you know, people buy and people sell for different reasons. It's like buying a house, you know. You know, like, for example, I'm selling my house now and I've had God knows how many people traipse through. And until and I'm selling for a reason because I, I want to sell and have money and downsize. Um, that's my reason. And the, and the people who are coming to buy my house are a family and they're buying a large family house. So that actually is a synergy. Now where it goes wrong is I don't get probably the price I like, or maybe the family moving in has to do more work uh, on the house to live in it than they'd like. But at the end of the day, there is an agreement and nobody agrees a, a, an acquisition or a merger unless they are agreeable in one way, shape or form. And of course, it really comes down to it. It's a business at the end of the day, you're buying businesses. So somebody is bound to gain more than the other in all reality. So one plus one, yeah, rarely equals two, but you know, you can be both in accord in some way, shape or form without any doubt, whether it's from a monetary point of view or from a, a visionary uh, roadmap point of view, you know, uh, it's a bit of a difficult question to answer Neville really, to be honest. And uh, I guess uh, if you've been then, M&A most of your life I think that you're interested in Neville I'd say that you know there's been some shocking ones as you know without a doubt that people buy other companies uh, for their client lists and pillage them and then dump the staff on the street well that's the way it is sadly that's harsh harsh reality of business and there have been other success stories where there have been great synergies of a company growing by acquiring another company but at the end of the day, if you've got two companies and there are similar job functions in each, there's going to be some consolidation. And that's just, that's just unfortunate. Our next question is from Jan Barbosa. He's a brand ambassador at BB Inc. in Puerto Rico. And Jan also joins us on video. Hello, this is Jan Barbosa from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, hello to Neil Cal Catermo and as the CEO, I want to ask a question. 
uh, Warren Buffett just said that Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway overpaid for Kraft following last week's stock plunge. Could you name two great recent mergers and two truly, truly awful ones? Uh, thank you and have a nice day. Greetings to Ask the CEO. Bye. <laughs> wow. Two great ones and two failed ones. That's not put me on the spot, is it? Um, well, obviously, within tech would be a good one, right? Um, I don't really want to go outside that sphere, but, you know, I mean, let's look at some interesting ones. There's some big ones from a long time ago. How about HP acquiring uh, Compaq? That was an interesting acquisition. We're all familiar with that one. You know, that happened a long time ago, right? You know, and when... When that happened, HP's uh, stock dived, absolutely dived. Now, what was the point? I mean, why was that? That's a very good question, right? You'd think that it would actually increase massively. And it did over time, right? Um, but anyone thought, what on earth? I mean, Compact had a very solid brand, you know, for a very long time in that marketplace. And then they got acquired by Hewitt-Packard, who their brand name at that time was mostly related, let's face it, to, to printers um, and that environment, consumables. And that wasn't the best. But however, now look at it now from, from an acquisition point of view, HP, HPE, should I say, an extremely dominant force, right? It's taken a while, um, but that's worked out okay. You could also say that then... What about HP's acquisition of autonomy? Um, should I even mention that, really? That was awful. Right? I mean, let's be honest about it. That was probably one of their worst acquisitions ever um, for so many reasons. Right? And then there were lots of lawsuits after the fact. Uh, they didn't do this, and I didn't agree to this, and then the bickering went on for years and years and years. Um, Microsoft acquiring Nokia, right? And um, why did they do that? You know, and was that successful? Who knows, right? Um, I would probably put my, yeah, I'd put it out there, really. I'd, I'd say it probably wasn't the most successful acquisition that they'd ever done. And you can, you can argue the reasons why they did that. And it was, personally, I think it was down to client acquisition from Nokia so they can outreach even more from their existing product sets wasn't the best and if you were a Nokia employee I'm sure you'd have a lot to say about that kind of acquisition um yeah I mean the Red Hat acquisitions a pretty interesting one as we buzz at the month uh, at the moment I think that's a good acquisition for IBM really uh, I think it's making them move forward it's certainly in the open source space that's a, that I think yeah, okay, some people could say that they paid uh, a little bit more than they should have done. However, if you knew IBM like an IBM cider, you would probably say it's probably a good buy in the fact that IBM have been working on open source technologies for decades. They have their own, I mean, there's a, their whole product line in one of, the, one of their product lines is based on open source and, and their own inherent OS. And they have... They have groups. They have the the mainframe project uh, group. You know, you've got it's just they are very very technical and always have been in open source. So that's one driver 
for them, it complements that acquisition, but also the other side of things where personally, I think I'm going to really put myself out there. I think the culture might rub off. So I think you might find the red hat culture rubbing off to IBM, mm-hmm. you know, uh, invigorating the teams that they have today. And I think you might find a different IBM in another couple of years. Our next question is from Paul Colmer. He's a digital architect, coach, and trainer with ALC Training and Consulting in Brisbane, Australia. And Paul joins us on video. G'day, Neil. G'day, Avro. At Music Composer One here. have a fantastic question for you guys. So now that IBM has acquired Red Hat, does IBM have a strategy for entering the IoT consumer market? What I mean is, are there any plans to disrupt Amazon Alexa and Google Home? Look forward to your answers, guys, uh, from beautiful Melbourne. Thanks so much. Oh, good day, Paul. How's it going? Um, I, that was my best attempt to an Australian accent, again, guess. Um, albeit I've got relatives over there, distantly. Um, that's a good question. Now, having sat through the five in five presentation at the IBM Think Expo in San Francisco, one of the five disruptive technologies that IBM are looking into and predicting to be very disruptive was home devices, funny enough. Um, And they presented um, a device that can check for pathogens in your food. So basically that's more to do with the IOT side of things, their division, but also this application technology that will link to your smart mobile device, whatever it may be, and allow you to check uh, for certain pathogens in your food. So I, I can't see IBM going out into major consumerization of home devices. Uh, that's just not their thing. They would rather provide the AI uh, engine behind the scenes like they do on many product sets as it is and, uh, and provide that service. You know, going into the home consumerization of IoT is not for the faint-hearted. And let's face it, it took you know, Amazon, uh, three or four years to be established before we've all got one uh, that plays some music, you know? I mean, that's, you know, would I go into that space now? Absolutely not. Would I provide the AI engine behind it? Absolutely. It's a lot easier. Our next question is from Ken Heron. He's the Chief Marketing Officer for UIB in Orlando, Florida. And Ken also joins us on video. Hi, Neil. It's Ken Heron. I'm CMO at UIB. Question for you. It's probably a lot easier to ask than it is for you to answer, but here goes. For those of us who create Internet of Things solutions for our customers, in 2019, what do you think are the three top things we should be looking out for to improve the security of our solutions? Thanks. Mm. He's right. Thanks, Ken, for that really difficult question. Yeah, well, to be honest, you know, 2019, and if you're looking at trying to secure your IoT solutions in one way or another, you've got to look at edge, obviously. Um, Edge networking speeds up, quite literally speeds up the way, the time for device states, 
and also connectivity. So you're leaving your infrastructure to a certain degree or elements of it. So it allows you to fast communicate out from your edge network rather than your core. Now that needs security without a doubt, because if you're actually some of your IOT platforms are going to be closer to the edge of core to the ether of the internet, you need to secure that appropriately. Then I guess then you've got another initiative is, okay, I'm going to need many instances of this. So I would then have to think, okay, so I need then software defined wide area networking of some description if I'm quite a large player. So then I need to secure that too. Right? So I may have uh, maybe a global company and that may need many, many, many nodes throughout the complex infrastructure of the internet uh, in different disparate places. So I need to secure them too. Um, and then and again, instances of edge protection as well as, um, but then you've got your key, your, your core platform as well. You need to secure that. Well, the way I would look at this, I'll bring it back to a, an easy analogy. You know, you need multiple lines of defense for internet security and cybersecurity. You can't just rely on one. You know, there's a buzz from the US that's been coming over here for the last year and a half called MDR. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's, um, um, I think it stands for multiple uh, detect and remediation for, for security. So basically... Most service providers in tech, you know, provide you a service. Now, actually, that's great, but then they have to evolve to provide you a, serv provide you a service that's very secure. And then so, you know, they become a managed security service provider as well as a managed service provider. So, you know, how do you do that? You need multiple uh, threat detection mechanisms in place. So rather than react, You've, you've got to deter the nasty people out there really of, and the opportunists, the opportunists uh, of, you know, wants to get into your network and uh, pillage your data and sell it on to as many people as possible. Neil, how can people connect with you? Uh, Twitter would be the easiest. It's at Neil Catamol, uh, obviously. LinkedIn, connect me there. Um, just send me a, a, a direct message. Um, I'll always reply. I'm always on Twitter and I'm always on LinkedIn anyway. So as you know, I'm quite active on that. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll post that information in the show notes so people can just click on that and get right to you. Neil, do you have any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience? Ooh, if you're starting a business, always start with the end in mind. Uh, I know it's difficult when you start up a company and it's all about you and your idea and it's your baby and you want to nurture it and grow this baby. But, you know, sooner or later, the baby's going to leave home and you've just got to come to that reality. And if you can do that sooner rather than later and have that plan for that, that parting time is going to be a lot easier for you. Neil, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. I really enjoyed having you on the show. No, thank you, everyone. It's been a pleasure.